RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Today, we're talking with midwives, three of them who are joining me right now. Absolute pleasure to have Anne Sharplin. Anne, welcome. Hello. Good morning, everyone. And good morning, Paul. And I just want to say, well, I have the opportunity that I have listened to pretty much all those interviews you referred to earlier. I listen a lot, and I'm very grateful that you've got RCR up and running. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Melanie Levinson. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. And Sarah Gilbertson. Sarah, thanks for coming on. Good morning. Lovely to be here. I've never had three midwives in front of me (laughs) before. (laughs) I've had one um, on three occasions. So I know about that, but it's great to have you folks with us. And again, I think it's very important to tell these stories. And this is this is a fascinating sector to look at because you are hard up against where I would say the rubber of the road of life hits the road, right? It's you guys. Who wants to make a comment about that? Um. What, was, were you going to suggest me, Sarah? No, I was. I was going to say, over to you, Anne. <clears throat> um, yes, yeah, so I, um, I've i been in this space a lot. I, I've been a midwife for 42 um, years now, and I came into it because the system was not giving providing care for women um, specifically seeking birth at home. And I was one of those midwives in the 80s uh, who did a lot of political work uh, so that in 1990, the New Zealand College was able to be formed. Now, the political work I did was not was with a handful of midwives and specifically Joan Donnelly, who was um, in the right place at the right time, and she led us politically Um, But essentially, we worked with the Home Birth Association. So we were a grassroots uh, consumer-led group of midwives responding to the needs of women who were not and families who were not getting their needs met, specifically birthing at home. Now, I was also subject to um, unprincipled tactics by the... um, Joan Donnelly called them that, um, by the state, uh, the Department of Health at the time. We were paid very badly uh, compared to our hospital colleagues in an effort to starve us out, really, and to get rid of home birthing. However, as as we know, that didn't happen. And I am a founding member of the College of Midwives, which we formed in 1990. So I make that statement because... I have been so invested in my college, in my profession. I have, over the years, I've mentored many, many uh, graduate midwives. I've also had many, many student midwives working with me So, um, and learning from me. So it was a, um, it was a difficult uh, experience in November the 16th, uh, 2021. And on the 15th, I was working at the birthing centre in primary care. I know that I helped a baby. I am a senior midwife and I helped a baby take its first breaths. I worked alongside my colleague. And I know that same day we helped a woman. uh, We prevented her from having a uh, 
uh, threatening um, uh, hemorrhage. So I appeared to be a capable midwife. The next day I got an email, as we all did, those of us who were met, who chose not to take the, the community vaccine by that date. I got the email telling me that I was unfit to practice and a danger to public health. Now, the incongruity of that has been shocking, actually. And, um, and I just speak about that because it's madness. Uh, you know, the day before I met all the requirements, we all did. We all met the educational and the professional requirements of being a midwife in New Zealand. And for myself, I, I was a senior midwife and an educator and a mentor. And so that's probably enough about that. Again, I would say a common theme here. Your body of work, your history of work, your accomplishments in your career, long career, and you've been doing what you're doing about as long as I've been doing what I'm doing, and that feels like a yeah. long time, so I know that. And it's just so disposable. It's yeah. it's mind-blowing, and it's nasty, actually. It's nasty. By the way, I'll thank you because I didn't know that about you, um, and I think my family is a beneficiary of your efforts because we had two of our kids at home, and it was the most wonderful experience it really oh, that's was awesome Paul. So thank I you probably know who your midwife was yeah i um, can't off the top of my head remember the names because at the earliest yeah. it's 23 years ago now yeah yeah but um it was a a fantastic experience i'll never forget it and uh, i think it was a better experience because first one was in a hospital because we were nervous and it was first so i can compare the two experiences so i want to personally thank you for that yeah. melanie what happened to you? So um, I just I just wanted to acknowledge Anne and and all that she has done for women and and for birthing. And so I um, this is my twentieth year of practice. So I um, I feel like I have a, a a space of of wisdom and maturity and midwifery as well, but not to the extent of Anne. You know, it's it's really like um. To, to be working with a mentor now and a lot of when I came in was into the fold of what Anne had had brought in and so a lot of my understanding was formed by those earlier days specifically in New Zealand I came to New Zealand because of the maternity system I wasn't born here and I came because you know the the stories of our her story um which we've been looking at since we were mandated to really anchor us into what we're doing and how important it is that our voice is still heard is around the concept of home birth as the autonomy of the woman, her body and her body. We all have a body. So her feeling she has choices over her own body. And that's what women didn't have before the 80s when when the system of home birth was accepted in New Zealand and the the women and and the women that she was supporting stood up and said we have the right to choose what happens to our bodies and so for me when this happened you know in November on November 16th it felt so clear you know regardless of what it was it didn't matter what the treatment was or what was being offered it was went against every ethical bone in my body of what I was doing that 
everyone has the right to choose what happens to their body. It doesn't matter if their decision's right or wrong. It's their choice. It's their body. And, and so that's what it felt like for me. So for me, it felt, it felt a little bit gracious. You know, it felt privileged because I could make that, that decision. I felt like the, the wisdoms I've gained from the women I've worked with and watching their strength and their power, I had grown into a person that could say, oh, I won't do something against my body because I'm coerced. But I could feel how strong that coercion was for others and how difficult that decision was. Um, coercion from external um, and, and internal. Who am I going to let down? Because I can't work now and I can't. The women that we were working with, that was the hardest part. So I'm a home birth midwife as well. So my relationship wasn't with the state. It was with the women. And my heart was breaking. No one asked them. No one said, do you not want Mela to support you at your birth? All they wanted was that I could continue working. Well, some of them, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but there was a deep sadness within them that their rights were taken away of who would support them. That's one of their choices. So, so yeah, there was, yeah, but, but it felt important. It felt important um, as a midwife to say, oh, no, this is a line I won't cross. Um, so, so I stepped back, um, feeling like it was, it's one of those moments in time where you get to say yes or no. And, and it's not just for me. I have, I have a child, I have children around me. They, it was important for me that they see that they need to make stands for themselves and for what's right to to work from their heart space to work from their moral compass that's probably too much as well <laughs> no that makes perfect <laughs> sense my wife's talking about <laughs> that makes uh, a story. lot of sense to a lot of thank people thank you um sarah yeah um i for me it was uh it was a rolling Train coming down the tracks that um, I was desperately trying to do everything I possibly could to stop it. Um, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe that <clears throat> this was happening in our country and um, as midwives informed consent and bodily autonomy um, are so important to us. And so um, it, it did, it felt like a freight train and um, we... We found each other um, as midwives, um, who, you know, those of us who who were against the mandates, we found each other and we, we worked together and we we went to court <clears throat> to try and challenge the decision. Um and but to no avail. And I think the thing that upsets me still to this day is the exemption process, um, how utterly unfair and nonsensical and completely against ethics that process was. And for pregnant women um, who were mandated, they were not allowed to have an exemption. They were not allowed to say, I'm breastfeeding 
So I'm making a choice not to do this right now, which in days gone by, you know, pre-COVID, that's an, that's a really that's a sensible decision that we respect. But because it was COVID, that just got tossed aside. And the ability for people to make sensible health choices was just steamrolled. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I continue to be um, sometimes overwhelmed by the, the lack of wisdom, the lack of um, precautionary principle, that the precautionary principle is what we go to. Um, it, it's something that we do as midwives. We, we sit on our hands we have a, a, a wait and a wait and watch approach often, um, and sometimes that's difficult to do. But but it's what we do, and that was never that was never considered through this pandemic. Um, so yeah, yeah, bemused is is my is my go to word for the whole thing. To be honest, Paul. A freight train coming down the track. That's a good way of putting it as well. This precautionary principle is so obvious <clears> for anyone, pregnancy. you know, and even someone like me. But when it comes to pregnant women, I would say the most kind of occupying a very precious status, let's put it that way, to have that dispensed with so easily, so whimsically, uh, well, that's hard to try and work out why that would happen. Do it is. It's, it is. It's, it's incredibly hard, and I, I really, really strongly believe that we need an inquiry. We need an inquiry as to why, why that decision making occurred, who made that decision. Um, there needs to be some accountability. Because anyone just looking at this, like me looking at it, um, would say that. This the organisation that that um, discarded that principle. Let's say is obviously not fit to be running the <clears throat> system. How could they be? Could yeah. I speak to a couple of things that um, both you and Mella, you and and Sarah have raised uh, just before we move on? One is about the exemptions. I just want to give a, a really uh, detail in October when I was practicing a month before I was man we, we were mandated, I did a, a, a locum clinic in, in rural Waikato for a midwife who needed leave. And I, that morning I saw seven women. Six of those women, the, the vaccine had been starting to be rolled out. Six of those women had had the first community vaccine. Of those six women, Two of them had been to A&E um, for uh, breathlessness and heart palpitations, and that was dismissed. Two others had started bleeding directly within a day of receiving that. Now, one young woman looked at me beseechingly and said, I don't want to have the second one. And at that stage, we were under some illusions or hopes that we as practitioners, because we have prescribing rights, et cetera, that we could dispense exemptions. But of course, that was quickly um, taken away and then doctors were not able to and then only um, Ashley Bloomfield was able to. So I, all the best I could do was document in their notes the, uh, the very clear causal um, 
uh, effects that they were experiencing. Now, I just comment on that because, as has been said, I've been a midwife for a long time, and I've never, ever, ever had that experience where two-thirds of women experienced severe um, health problems, and it was clearly linked to the um, to the vaccine. And then the other point I want wanted to speak to, Mella, which you were talking about, um, our bodily autonomy and informed consent. I'm speaking to the Midwives Handbook for Practice. And this is the Midwives Handbook for Practice provides up-to-date information and supports. Um, it's, it's our professional uh, handbook. And we have 10 standards in here. And the second standard is devoted, there's a whole page of it, um, to the midwife upholds each woman's right to free and informed choice and consent throughout the childbirth experience. Now, it also, the second bullet point says, we facilitate women to make decisions without coercion. And um, to the response of the, the COVID response from the Department of Health was to go a step further in not only denying all of New Zealand citizens the right to make informed choice and give consent or not without coercion, but as we know, they ran roughshod over the Bill of Rights. Um, so I just wanted to point out that when you said the system, I think, Paul, you referred to the system being um, broken. Um, I believe it is broken because it's it's not cognizant now and it's not working with its own foundational um, foundation foundations of practice. Um, yeah, that was... That. Well, I'd go one step further, and I, I can say <laughs> this um, here, that they actually threaten people's lives. That's what it means. <laughs> a yes. health system threatening people's lives directly? Sorry, yeah, what's how, wrong with that how picture? How healthy is that? Yeah. What's wrong with that picture? <laughs> um, I, mean, it, I think it's crazy. I, I think you're right. And I think the other thing I want to say, and it's something with how, Mally, you prefaced um, having to have caution, I also want to acknowledge all of our colleagues who, for whatever their reasons, remained working in a very broken system and we know are under huge stress. And I know that all of us, when we were forced to stop working, did not want to abandon our colleagues. And the place where I was working, a primary birthing unit um, here in Tarama, shut its doors um, five, six months later. So the women of our community were denied those services. Well, two, two of their myself and another senior midwife were mandated out. So they were struggling, everyone, and they're still struggling. Uh, however, Paul, I love it that you can say that like it is because I think it's true. Yeah. And for you to see that in one locum clinic. Yeah. Do the numbers. Run the numbers. Mm -hmm. That's shocking. Mm -hmm. Um, feel free to range wherever you want to go, but obvious questions come up. How, how much thinking, and, and this is a question I ask people when we're discussing this, how much thought have you had about the motivations of all of this? I mean, how can people 
suddenly develops such a blind spot that it sort of blocks out the sun in this way. And these are, I'm sure, um, outfits, institutions that that you folks have been working with for quite some time, so have experience of. Is think, it some kind of group thing or thought virus or what is it? I, I, from what from what I experienced, Paul, uh, there was a lot of fear, a lot of fear of the unknown, and um, people were coming from a place of thinking that if they got COVID, they were going to die, and that a lot of people were going to die, <clears throat> and that we all had to do take this vaccine. Um, otherwise, there was going to be catastrophic devastation, mm-hmm. and. I think that the fear was, well, we know. We know that the fear was artificially inflated and we know that it was kept alive and we know that there was, you know, psychological tactics used on the public to keep that fear alive. Um, And I think that that is what drove a lot of decision-making from what I could see. Any other comments to make about that? Um, Um. Pondering with it, but from a slightly different angle, I feel like, you know, as midwives, we we have very intimate relationships and there's, our relationships are a lot around support, but we also really firmly um, can walk in with with research, you know, with, with scientific research and knowledge as well. There's, a, there's an academic head side to what we do. And so it's been a very long time that eroding of research-based guidelines and recommendations within midwifery. And so we work with a lot of guidelines and a lot of policies. And I did a little bit of reading, you know, before coming on. And, you know, it's estimated that, you know, there's about 9 to 12% of the, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists guidelines that are actually considered Class A evidence-based guidelines, which means that it's come from information that we know. A lot of the stuff that's happening around birth now is around what we call authoritative knowledge. It's like people just agree that this is the thing that we're going to do. And then that's that's put as a recommendation. And so I think we, we walk in that a lot at the moment. And what we do as midwives is we're constantly acknowledging that it is authoritative. It's not based on something. It's based on what another culture did or what they're doing in another country or cultural norms around us, but it's not science-based. And that's why women always have the right to choose what's right for them because it's not a black and white decision. It's not like we know this. It's just that we do this. And so with this rollout, we were still kind of in that paradigm, but the consequences were so massive. Mm. It was now like take a treatment within pregnancy. We don't actually know. We don't have evidence that it's safe, yet we have this historical knowledge that it's been so catastrophically bad. You know, we've seen thalidomide, we've seen DES. We've, you know, and DES, it was it was the whole generation before we understood what the impacts were that of that were. I don't know. It's even something that's not spoken about much, but you know, for those that might be listening that didn't know, it was only in the children of those born of women that had DES when they became fertile that it was an understanding of of what the damage was, so infertility for 
women in Sierra, I think you were saying there was also it affected yeah, for boys men. and the boys as well. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And so so here we were in this kind of paradigm of like you should do this and take something into your body during pregnancy and breastfeeding. But it was so fast. We just don't know. Mm. Yeah, and that that precautionary principle is just like up there in neon lights, yeah, yeah, flashing so, in front of you, but no one's looking. Yeah. Well, and- once again, it 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 goes against our handbook for practice. And I will quote on page five, competency one: midwives provide up to date information, and we support the woman with informed decision making. Now, the up to date information was not given by the single source of truth to the general public and to a pregnant woman in in particular and in particular from the uh, edicts of the Midwifery Council and the College of Midwives. So they were going against our own foundational um, principles and also competency 3.3, we promote midwives, midwives who are doing a good job promote self-determination for the woman and her family, whānau. Um, and, um, and competency four, 4.8, midwives recognise our own values and beliefs and we do not impose them on others. So that's why I think it's been a big shock to us as, as, a, uh, as midwives, especially, oh, well, we're, I mean, gosh, Mella, 20 years is a long time, my friend even though you're sort of a baby to me. But, um, uh. <laughs> you know, we're steeped in this thinking. We're steeped in this way of practice as health professionals. So um, it's been very difficult. And as we know, with doctors speaking out with science, teachers, etc., cetera, those, um, those of us or those um, health professionals or scientists who did speak out and on the international um, stage, you know, the Dr. Peter McCulloch's and et cetera, um, you know, were cancelled. And we also have had that experience of being cancelled and ignored. And my son said to me this morning, go for it, mum, it's your chance to finally be heard. (laughs) Get it out, don't hold back. (laughs) Um, I was just thinking before when you guys were talking and Anne you speaking at the start about, you know, going back all those years to the early 80s and the changes that, that you talked about, that I wonder if part of this um, was a, a bit of an arm wrestle to get control back or authority back and, and more of a medicalised way of midwifery. I mean, you've been out there doing your own thing for too long, you know. We'll show them who's in control. Is there anything in that? I... I think that has validity in the sense that we don't know because in spite of repeated requests to ask um, the council, midwifery council, the actual numbers of midwives who were mandated out because frequently um, the college would say, oh, hardly, there, there are so few midwives mandated. When, when they were asked why is there such a shortage, they would not refer to the um, effect of the mandates that ended that, you know, stopped midwives from working. So, um, yeah. Our, our numbers that we, we collected numbers ourselves and um, and we had it estimated, I think it was between two to 300. Um, 
yeah, it was yeah, it was it was a good it was a good percentage of the workforce. What is that as a percentage? Could you just ten percent, close 10. to ten percent, eight to ten percent? Yeah, um, we we collected information prior to the actual mandate taking place, and um, and a lot of people. What what the sad thing is, Paul, is that it's pushed a lot of midwives into taking early retirement. So we have um, collectively lost a lot of good, wise heads. And um, for our student midwives coming through, that's a great loss. Um, so it could end up being bigger than 10 in yes. total, the effect. Yeah, yeah. And it was just so difficult um, to get any of our um, professional bodies to to actually recognise what was going on and to collect the information and then we would see things in the media saying, oh, there's such a shortage of midwives. Um, two, 200 have not, um, since last year, um, renewed their practicing certificates. And it's like, well, yeah, duh, because we yeah, were well, they want us. They <laughs> won't ask the question. Yeah, exactly. Because they know what the answer is or they're just so, I don't know, blind spotted that they can't even think of answering, yeah. you know, asking that obvious question. It's just... Um, uh, the oh, inability sorry. to talk about it. No one was allowed to talk about it. Oh, so it was just swept. It's the giant elephant sitting in the room still to this day. More than one. Allowed to speak of. It's a whole and I, herd. I wanted to um, just add to Sarah, um, because during that time, because we actually consolidated before the mandates, which Sarah did mention, and our numbers were much higher before. So, so the midwives from, I love that Anne keeps bringing up the handbook for practice because that is our guide and it's there in black and white. You know, I love that handbook. You know, I feel like that's what I'm doing. Every that it is, It's so pure, that informed choice and consent. So there were a lot more midwives that did not support the mandates, but that continued to work. So those numbers were never calculated. We asked for workforce surveys to say, can you please check with the membership to see who thinks that informed choice and consent needs to be upheld, regardless of decision? You know, that's that's what we're doing. We're saying it's not about what decision you choose for yourself or how you make that choice as a midwife. But can we check that the, the midwifery, the, the, the body of midwives, the membership of midwives, how they feel about overriding informed choice and consent. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and it wasn't done. We had a montage here recently, which was incredible to listen to because when you bring multiple people into one montage, you, you realize the concentration that you might not have been aware of, of the, you know, the messaging effort. And that was of doctors, all females, I've got to say, doctors. I think the midwifery council, I could have the wrong organization there but uh, someone malin does that ring a bell uh her um the usual um Pitassus harris and nikki turner and the thing that struck me and a lot of people listening because we've got a big reaction to that was first of all incredibly light on information no yeah. information actually but the confidence yeah in what they were saying yeah like they were they came across now, some of them sounded a little sheepish, like they they weren't quite sure, really, if you're trying to interpret body language and, and, and the tone. But the confidence was so strong that anyone watching those, and they would have seen them as individual items, not concentrated into the montage we have, would have probably found them totally believable. And I, I that's the thing that struck me. I'd like to get your comment on this. 
How could someone be so confident about something so unknown with no information while at the same time saying all the information says with certainty this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Paul, we could comment on that. Um, and I think our best response to that is, Sarah, for you to uh, to praise the information that we do know. I think everybody was just parroting. It, it was parroting the narrative. It was, you know, this is this is safe and effective. This doesn't cross the placenta. This doesn't go across breast milk, which we now know to be a complete falsehood. Um, and in actual fact, we know now that Pfizer knew that and that the Therapeutic Goods Administration in Australia knew that um, before the rollout happened here. And so you've got to ask the question, where was the due diligence and where was MedSafe in all of this? And how how did that messaging get out there? What 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 were the what were the conversations being had? You know, what what ground were they standing on to be so solid to say it doesn't cross the placenta? Because um, that those were the the key things that women and us as midwives wanted wanted to know. You know, those are, those are the immediate things that you go to when um, when a drug or anything is is taken in, um, and. And, and women were lied to, really. That's that's what it comes down to, is that they were lied to. Um, and we look at the, the database, the CALM database, which, um, you know, tabulates all the adverse events. And we've got 67 miscarriages in there. And we know that that's only a small percentage of the true number. Um, and that's over an 18-month period of the, the Pfizer rollout. And you compare that to um, a 10-year period of flu vaccinations where you've only got nine adverse events in the pregnancy category. Now, 67 in 18 months versus nine over 10 years is a hugely significant increase. And that, to me, is a safety signal. Um and yet now we, we can't access, the public can't access those reports. MedSafe has stopped publishing those um, adverse event reports. And we've got a bivalent booster being promoted for pregnant women. Um, it, it just beggars belief. It beggars belief. And we know that a lot of countries in um, the Northern Hemisphere, a lot of European countries, have stopped giving um, the COVID vaccinations to people under the age of 50. So effectively, that's stopped giving the um, vaccination to pregnant women. You know, I mean, there can be a pregnant woman over 50, but they're not, you know, <laughs> not, not really the norm. Um, so it just, it's like, why are we still doing this? Why, why is New Zealand still, still pushing um, this safe and effective narrative when the pandemic is over. We've had the World Health Organization say that the pandemic is over. We're not in a state of emergency. So shouldn't it be time now to just take a breath, 
analyze the data, look at things, and and reevaluate and have the discussion and stop pushing this so hard. Yeah, the marketing's still out there. Yeah. And the newspaper pieces are still positively covering it, let's say. Mm -hmm. The rest of the world's moved on. Everyone who could have it has had it some multiple times. I'm still waiting. Um, And yet it carries the the freight train you talked about. It hasn't stopped. It still comes. You could only, and again, I can say this, you can only deduce from that that the people involved in maintaining that are possessed, like people get possessed with something. They can't let something go. It's actually some sort of psychological conditional grip that they're under. I, I, I mean, what so. else could it be? I, I can't find a, another logical explanation for that because otherwise it doesn't make any sense. It's nutty. It's crazy. It's actually could, embarrassingly crazy. Could I um, speak to the slightly uh, to this slightly crazy? Doesn't make sense. Nutty. Um, so I think a lot of people are completely unaware that um, midwives are still being asked and. Individual mm-hmm. hospitals or individual areas throughout the country still require that midwives can only work in their hospitals or their birthing centres um, if they have had at least two of the community um, injections and um, sometimes they also ask for the third one. So while m- many people are so surprised, they say, oh, that's all over. The, the mandates are all over. Well, they're not actually for a lot of uh, nurses and um, other health professionals, and not for midwives. But the nutty thing is that a midwife, um, I have a friend, uh, She's she chose not to be vaccinated with the community, and she is doing locum work. And But because she's on a, a sort of a contract basis, she's not an employee of this hospital in the South Island, she can go in there without wearing a mask, without being vaccinated, um, and as apparently that's okay, but unfortunately the staff who are employed by that that um, DHB or hospital are still being asked to meet those requirements. So that's nutty. Yeah, um, yeah. it so is I'm, nutty. We're still waiting on the um, Tefata Aura vaccination policy to be finalised, and until that is finalised, um, they will not employ um, staff unless they have had two injections plus the booster. Yeah. We had a a job ad um, for a DHB posted on one of our Facebook pages, not for midwifery, but for physio. And you just reminded me of it. In the the, the kind of sale part of, you know, trying to interest people, they said that they were inclusive, non-discriminatory. This is what they wrote in the the job ad. And that, but it was a requirement to have vaccines that prevented you know, diseases, whatever. I'm trying to think of the exact words. I'm paraphrasing. Now, I noted looking at that, that this thing doesn't prevent it. So that's off the table. The next thing is you're not being inclusive because you're excluding people, probably very good physios from applying for this job, being employed. And you're not, uh, what was the the other one? You, you, You are discriminatory when you're saying you're not because you are discriminating. Now that's bare faced in your face, the writing this. Yeah. yeah. You'd think someone in the office would go, oh, hang yeah. on, can we say this? 
Um, yep. Aren't we discriminating here? It doesn't prevent it on every level. It yeah, was 180 degree wrong. If, if we can bring it back, I mean, the inconsistencies, but also bring it back to the women, because I think that's where our voice, we're always putting the women at the centre. So I can work now. I'm working because I'm a community-based midwife, so I'm allowed to work. Um, and I am allowed to go into the hospital with the women that I care for. And so I have been in the hospital setting a few times since I've um, had my practising certificate back supporting women. But I'm walking into a hospital setting that's understaffed still. So my colleagues are just, they're running under because there's not enough midwives on the floor because non-vaccinated midwives can't work in the hospital, yet I can be in there and I am in there. And and it's the women. That's who it's affecting. Yeah, yeah. It's actually women that are getting their care is, is less and sometimes dangerous. You know, we, we have an overstretched workforce that was already in crisis We've already been underpaid, overstretched as midwives, burnout, all these issues have been known for decades. And we, we constantly have this rhetoric around there aren't enough midwives, there aren't enough midwives. And then 10% were mandated. Hmm. And now still they're holding on to those last, there's those last reins where we're still understaffed, we're still in a workforce crisis. There's still midwives wanting to work and they can't work. Okay, and why are they the hanging women. on? Why are they hanging on so tight then? No, I don't know, but it's the women that are getting the care that they deserve. No, I understand that, but you know yeah, that only yeah. stops well, when they let go I mean, of whatever they're holding on to. Why? Why hold know. on to something? I so, know. I know, no. but I'm not going to talk for someone else, or, or you know, you know, everyone's and how systems work. But the the way it's working, or the decisions that are being made, women are suffering still. No, fair they're enough. suffering during the mandates. They're suffering still. But you've got to ask that question because that's what's causing the, yeah. the problem. Yeah. And it makes yeah. no sense. Yeah. And they're good midwives, like what Anne said in the very beginning. Sorry, Anne, you're going to, but they're good midwives that on November 15th were considered wonderful midwives with knowledge, experience, wisdom. And they still are, but they can't work. Yeah. Um, I'm just aware of time, and mm. I want to speak to the effects on the women and going back to that time. And I, I want to refer, Paul, I don't know if you're aware, I know that most people are completely unaware that the Midwifery Council is laying charges against some of the mandated midwives who responded in a duty of care to the needs and requests and of women, um, and particularly in that early period. So the mandates took effect on November 16th. Now, I know of one midwife, and I've spoken to her. She's happy for me to talk about her case. Uh, she is going before the Health Practitioners Disciplinary Tribunal sometime in the next month. The reason and the charge they're laying against her is malpractice. Now, I've been around a long time. I've been aware of and I've supported midwives through health and disability complaints, ACC complaints, um, our midwives resolutions complaint system. And those complaints, and uh, for a midwife to be charged with malpractice, she's either have got to have 
either done or omitted to have done something really serious in clinical care or been fraudulent or whatever. However, this this charge for this particular midwife is because these she had a caseload of women. She did her best to find um, alternative care for these women. She was working in an area of New Zealand there, where there was a shortage of midwives. The women could not get another midwife. They were planning home births. They were multips. They'd had babies before. They were not going to go into the hospital. Uh, one of them had schooled up on how to free birth. They went into labour, and it was like within the first month of being mandated. Um, they called, there were two that I know of, called this midwife, and she went as a duty of care, and she worked as a midwife. Now, she hadn't been there. One of the babies um had a wee problem, had a, you know, a problem with the shoulders being born. So this midwife being there was made an effect. Um, and she is being charged with malpractice. Now, that is wrong. And one of the reasons I'm not going to renew my annual practicing certificate into the existing system is because I don't want my funds to be supporting uh, the council to be um, doing this uh, dastardly work of of trying to pull midwives down when what we have been asking them to do, because they're, what they're charged with is to protect the public. Now, to protect the public, they need to do everything in their power, in my opinion, to get as many midwives working again as possible. The public are at risk from this shortage of midwives. Um, this midwife said I, I, she's um, doing her best to stay up with it, it may end in that she's struck off the register, she may be given a hefty fine, or she may be given a pro criminal prosecution. Now, that is wrong. And the public of New Zealand, there are at least seven other midwives who have had um, processes of professional conduct complaints processes. I sat alongside one midwife um, where they're trying to lay this on midwives. So... I did want to speak about that when we have the t now that we've got the time. Thanks. And and the, the crime was not taking the Pfizer injection. Yeah, yes, exactly. Whereas actual malpractice, the actual malpractice was if she hadn't gone. In mm. my opinion. Mm. <laughs> Again, sort of hanging on so tight when it's obvious that they're sort of out out there on a limb. Well, the thing with midwifery yeah. is that it's a bit like the paramedics and the doctors in A&E. Um, it's, it's not like doctor's appointments where we can defer our clinics or our postnatal visits. Or when someone's in labour, you can't just say, well, let's postpone that until I've, I'm free of the mandate. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, it's just yeah. big. Well, what I was thinking was I was putting myself in the situation of, of, of the parents to be. Yes, that's it. And I can honestly say that, and I've been in this situation before of being a parent with a, with a birth about to happen. Man, if I was the father there, I would be an angry man having my partner and family treated in that way with the consequences of what happened to the person who helped me. Sure. I would not be a happy man, I'm telling you now. 
Anyway, exactly. that's just me. That's just me venting right now. Could it get any worse? <laughs> or uh, are we at peak worse now? <laughs> and and do you see uh, do you see a way through? Because that's really sad, and that you're not you're not back in it. You know. Yes, it's massive loss. Thank you, Paul. It's also difficult because um, if a woman calls me. Uh, I have a young woman, uh, her mother, I was her mother's midwife. In other words, I caught her, delivered her. She's nearly That 70. is so cool. <laughs> yes, yes, it's very cool. <laughs> um, yes, she's approaching me. Now, what you know, I'm telling her I can't give you care because I could be prosecuted. Um, you know, it's a, it's a hard battle. And... Um, could it get any worse? Well, in a way, we're sort of going round in circles. I just want to refer back to Joan Donnelly again, who wrote in a book that she published um, in the early 90s, um, her story of the New Zealand Home Birth Associations, and she wrote that women-centred midwifery care is evaluated and shaped by women's birthing experience and that, like women, midwives only have two choices – one is to work in a medically referenced way as defined by obstetrics and institutions, and that's referring to that power um, that that power bid Paul that you talked about. Are they are we are they is are they trying to control us? Um, that's that's been had a long history in midwifery. Midwives were burnt at the stake in the 14th century. Um, so that's one choice, and our other choice is that we practice in a woman-centered way as defined by Mother Nature and in women's homes primarily. But this leads on to Aku Kaimanawa, Aku Huia Kaimanawa Midwives Collective, which Mela and Sarah know about and are leading the charge because we really, if you can speak about that, Sarah Mela, about how we're trying, you are trying, and I'm supporting you to create another healthy, women-centred, uh, women-empowered uh, system of care. Now we're talking. This is how. This is what we've got to do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Go for it, Sarah. Oh, look, it's, um, I think that is the gift in all of this, Paul, is um, it has given us clarity and enabled us to reflect on our roots and return to our roots and, um, and, and birth something new out of out of the darkness and um all of us coming together and finding one another we have um started a, a collective a kahuia kaimanua which means that the treasures we hold close to our heart which for us are bodily autonomy and informed consent um and so we are we are we are remembering who we are we're remembering our roots and we're remembering um that birth doesn't necessarily belong in a hospital and that as a society we took a bit of a wrong turn somewhere along the way um and and we can we can get back on track and i'll let mala speak more go mel okay i'm like uh that's it it's it's it was a natural evolution we we found each other before the mandates because it's what midwives do we we are really good at informed choice and consent so it was and and we've been leaders within maternity for decades and so we felt we could lead again 
we felt like, oh, no, we, we need to lead this as well and acknowledge that informed choice and consent in New Zealand is something in Aotearoa that would, that would never be um, silenced and were shocked when it was silenced and then kept talking and kept communicating and realised we can't let go of that. It's it, If that's been let go of by one part within midwifery, we still need to hold it and we still need to nourish it. And so, yeah, it's it's so grounded. Like Sarah said, it's it's based on our her story. It's based on on the things that we've done so well for so long in New Zealand. Um, and it is an it's women and midwives working together. Although, you know, we're representing here as midwives, this is our journey, but it's an acknowledgement of, um, you know, women as well demanding that their bodies are respected and their choices are respected because it's archetypal. Mm. You know, women and, and birth and the way women are treated in birth is very much around how society views women and yeah. the power of wisdom, the feminine power, the feminine wisdom. It's, it's when... Um, when women are well supported, when birth is well supported and women understand the power they have, it's a power with rather than a power over. So it's it's really embedded in culture. And and so we're holding on. Yeah. And it's it's, it's really important. It's that classic peace on earth begins with birth. Um and and we 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 want we want we want peace on earth. <laughs> So, we do, yeah. And this is this is this is hanging on to to concepts for humanity, for humanity. Um, yeah. These are concepts that um, transcend time and space, and that we need to carry forward, and we need to hang on to. Um, so we're doing that. We're doing that, and um, and it feels it feels more positive, and it feels good that we've got midwives back working um, in the community. Um, we are slowly as a group um, returning, you know, um, people are people are hurt and a little bit reluctant to go back to um, to a system that has has treated them in such a bad way. but um, but people are, are returning. Ideally, we get rid of these ridiculous um, mandates with Tefatu Auras. Not, not ideally. Yeah. Low, lower threshold than that. They got to go now. <laughs> yeah. Not ideally. Um, yeah. And and yeah, I mean, for for me personally, I think as as a country, we we need we need a good inquiry. And and I think it's pretty scandalous that the inquiry into the COVID response is not even going to touch on. Um, well, it's pretty obvious why that is. And again, I can yeah. say that they want to limit the damage that they know inevitably will fall on them because they know what they've done. They do. Yeah, I'm um, I'm convinced of that, and I know I can say that. I'm not asking you to agree or or or, or um, whatever, but uh, it's logical. Paul, can I just put a little plug in there because I'm not like so used to doing these interviews? But if if what we're saying has resonated with you, then you're welcome to come check out our website. Um, it's www.akuhuyakaimanoa.com. Um, and and have a look and and please like join our membership you know it's it's i think we've known throughout the responses it's the people's voices that's going to change things 
it's not the professional saying this isn't right. It's the women's voices standing, the, the whanau, the families, the dads standing up going, no, I want rights over my own body as I birth. And so so come have a look, come join. Um, we've got an event coming up as well. Um, so yeah, do you want- 20, 21st of June, we're hosting a webinar with um, a fabulous woman, Nikita Stark, um, who started a movement in the UK called When Push Comes to Shove. And um, she's going to present um, a webinar. She's she's amazing. She's an inspirational speaker. Um, so that's on the 21st of June. Um, but yeah, like Mala said, check out the website, akahueakaimanawa.com. Yeah, um, let us know. Get part, involved. <clears throat> part of this was the the re um and or reigniting our networks because we didn't know what our networks were, and so we all it happened so surprisingly that we didn't know how to find each other. So now there is this central point, which is this collective. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Okay. And for women to find one another in their communities is really important. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, well, that's great information. I think we're coming up almost an hour, so let's um, let's wind things up with the last comments. Anne Sharplin, two thousand deliveries, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, actually, that was seven years ago. It's oh, even more more than that, Paul. Um, and I've uh, Joan Donnelly told me to keep my data. She said that's your main weapon was the word she used, and I have kept that data. Uh, I have all my hard copy notes, and one day I hope to uh, produce a quantitative retrospective retrospective analysis of that, um, of the body of a work of a New Zealand midwife. It's good. The data actually is very good outcomes. Yeah. So um, I, I just want to thank you so much for giving us this forum where we can feel safe and where we can actually speak without being shut down, interrupted. And I want to thank Mella and Sarah too, because you are the young ones. Uh, You are, as um, who said that, Um, you know, who fed that into, you know, Star Wars? You are, you're our only hope. Help help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You are our only hope. Yeah. I can't think of the character, but that's familiar. These aren't the droids you're looking for. (laughs) It was Princess Leia. Princess Leia (laughs) is the woman. Yeah. So, you know, that I sincerely say that. I want my granddaughters to have the choices that I had and that my beautiful daughter-in-laws have had. So thank you. And thank you. Mel, any final words? Thank you. And just, yeah, I think finishing with Anne is perfect. Mm. And Sarah, yeah, yeah, you kind of had Thank a final you. word, but you can have one more if you want. Oh, yeah, no, all good. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Asia. Okay, so I want to thank midwives uh, Anne Sharplin, Melanie Levinson, and Sarah Gilbertson for coming on the program. We really appreciate it. I know our listeners got a hell of a lot out of that. So thanks, guys. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.